This is an Artist Journey podcast, the podcast for people thriving and creating as artists. I'm your host, Malcolm Dewey, and let's begin. Welcome to episode 29 of an Artist Journey podcast. Today, I'm particularly excited to have as a special guest, Joe Joubert, a South African artist and paint maker. If the term Renaissance man can be applied to anyone, I think uh, Joe Joubert may be a candidate for that description. He's an amazing man, a real humble um, South African, and is doing a fabulous work. Not only is he a gifted artist, but uh, he has had to overcome a lot of uh, personal hardship and is an inspiration for hard work, taking opportunities and producing something exceptional, very often out of nothing. You can't help but be inspired by Joe Joubert's story. And uh, currently, he is doing amazing work in creating and uh, manufacturing artist quality paint. But not just any artist quality paint. This is artist quality paint based on the methods and materials used by master paint makers in the old master tradition. Joe is making these paints available to South African artists for the first time. And we're going to find out how Joe came to make these paints, his ongoing efforts and work to produce the finest quality artist paint right here in South Africa. So without further ado, let's meet Joe Joubert. Welcome, Joe. Welcome. Um, it's a pleasure speaking to you about my paints, a paint series that I've started and that I'm working on for the last couple of years. So it's a pleasure speaking to you. It's great to have you on the show, um, Joe, and I'm quite excited about uh, the things that you're getting up to. And I'm sure it'll be um, very interesting to other um, artists in South Africa and, and uh, around the world as well. So, um, Joe, just to start at the beginning, really, from what I've can find about your um, art uh, profile or art history that I've come across is that you were born in 1963 in, in the Kalahari region. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And uh, what what town were you? Come from a particular um, town in that region, or um, I grew up mostly in 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 Harsvater in the Northern Cape, but um, I was quite a lot and um, in my younger days in Uppington and northern parts of Uppington. Um, but later on, we moved to, to the Northern Cape to, to this place called Hartswater. It's, it's in the Fala schema, just a little bit south of Freiburg. Um, and I went to school in hostel okay. school because there was a problem child. So I went to hostel school, um, in Schweizerienica for mainly my, my high school years. Um, right. Okay. So, um, growing up in the, in that, um, region, how did you, Get into becoming an artist, Joe. Um, when I was in school, everything was just sport, 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 sport. And I mean, in that area, in that era where we, when we grew up, art was literally uh, non-existing. It was just not. There was not artists like today around, and those that were around, it was just not art on the same level that the, the higher, deeper meaning of art, um, or the, those kind of artists. And I, at that stage, I met Coral Fourie, um when I was in in 
primary years, I met Korofri. She's quite a known artist. She um she paints works with the Bushmans and she she it's it's very interesting if you go into her into her whole history. But um that was the f- basically the turning point for me when when I saw Coral's Coral's work for the first time in my life. That was in my I was still young at that age, ten, nine, ten, eleven years old, I think. And the day when I saw, when I, I walked into a studio, when I saw it, I just know that art's going to be my life. Um, that's what I want to do for okay. the rest of my life. And th- that was the starting point. And when I actually went to high school, um, in Swaziland, um, the primary school now in, in, in Swaziland, um, had a donation painting by Irma Stern. Now, I don't know if you're fam- familiar with Irma Stern's history, but she actually came, she grew up in, um, from Sw- in Swaziland as well. And she made a donation of pa- some paintings to the primary school there. And that was also a catalyst in my, when I saw her work, it was just awesome. I mean, um, at that stage, she wasn't, she was famous already, but I mean, it wasn't as it is today. So, um, th- it's basically those two. Irma Stern, um, and Korofuri, um, between them, they just put my path on, um, my career on a path. And from there on, it was no turning back. It was just paint all the way. So, oh, that's fantastic. You know, it's quite amazing that you got into to art or you realized that you want to be an artist at such an early age. But when you finished school, was it um, easy enough to, to get into? painting or did it come later in life that you actually got into it in, on a professional level i've always drawn you know i've um, like children would draw paint drawings i was always always busy with drawings or so but and then during my um defense force years for me art was like um i mean i knew very little about art at that stage and then i met a a a, a, a I can't remember what her name was. It was a, a young woman from um, Pretoria who was studying um, graphic design at that point at Pretoria University. And then I decided, okay, now maybe that's the direction for me to go. And then I started, I, st- I studied at Bloemfontein um, graphic design, but I actually wanted to do more fine arts. Right. Um, but what I've seen from the, the the lectures, what they were teaching at that point, I was just not impressed. Um, and then that, that's when I decided, now I'll, I'll do graphic design. But I only did it for two years, and then I started doing freelance work because at that stage I already decided I'm going to paint full time for the rest of my life. So I just used uh, that two years background in in advertising design. It was just as a springboard to 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 start earning something while you can start painting, and then. I started building up a client base that I did graphic design work for, but more and more I started painting and I started doing less and less graphic design. And until one day I just reached the point, so I decided, okay, now I'm going to jump in the deep side and I'm just going to paint full time. So that's basically how it was, how it happened for me. So, so you were doing graphic design. Were you employed as a graphic designer or were you self-employed? Only freelance. The reason why, why I've chosen to do freelance work at that point was, was to, to, so that I can manage my time better, um, to be able to put that every available minute just went into my art. So the, the graphic design was just a, it was just a means of, of getting an income for almost like a safety net, um, some security to get income for the times. We all know that when paintings doesn't sell and you need to buy paints, you know, you all know what happens. So, um, and how old were you when you started freelancing 
as a graphic designer? It was just the year after the defense. I think I was 21 years old at that stage. And Joe, it sounds like you're most artist from the days of the Impressionist. And uh, you, you started really from absolute nothing and taught yourself and went through quite a, a struggle to achieve your, your dream, really. To be honest, uh, yeah, I speak a lot to, when I speak to young, um, young artists, um, I, I try to help young artists as far as I can, but I do it, I, I don't do it for income. That, that's just, mm. it's, it's part of your gift that you have to share with others. And I always try and tell them, you know, artists today actually have it so, so easy in, in some sense, but they actually misuse it because if you, if you look at the availability of technology today, I mean, when I started my career, we didn't, we didn't have that luxury. I mean, you painted and you painted and you were lucky. You, you did art markets. The Bloemfontein art market was a great starting point for me. I was always sitting um, next to Father Clarot and we, we had great discussions and, um, but, but the young artists today, I think, you know, it's, it's so difficult to explain, but, um, you were faced at that during those days. You were faced, you had your work on an art market. You were just starting out. The world was your oyster and, Tomorrow morning, this, this client comes stand in front of you and some will break you down or make comments about your work, but you need to, you learn to get a tough skin and you learn to interact with the people and to talk about your work and to explain to them your work, but it's face to face. It's not like Facebook today. And it is a good thing, the technology, but I mean, people rely too much on it. I, that's my personal feel about it. So I was lucky in the sense that I had that old school exposure. It's still available for artists, but for some reason, there's a lot of artists that don't use it. They, they, they are. There's this thing for, about art for, if you go and stake your work and you put it on an art market, um, then you dig, you degrade your work. Um, and that, that, personally, I feel that's wrong. Um, I don't think all art only belongs in art galleries. Um, out in the open, you're going to get so many people that will come to you and they'll, they'll talk and they'll discuss about your work. Um, yes, that happens also in art exhibitions or analysis, but personally, I feel more artists should take the route, especially younger artists when they start their career, should take the route of using art markets and don't rely too much just solely on technology um, for, for marketing their work, or especially when they're starting out. Yeah, that's... Um that's a very interesting observation, uh, Joe. And uh, I know exactly what you, you mean about just talking about when you're getting started there. So it sounds like it would have been in the early 80s. That was about in the early 80s, yes. Yeah. And uh, I think I just was finishing school then as well. Sorry to interrupt you, but I just have to add, if I have that, if, if I can have that first 10 years of my life over again, Yes, that was a battle. That was an uphill battle. I think, but I think all artists go through it. Um, um, it's not a matter of you, you, you just paint and the success is there. You have to work at it and you work, you have to work extremely, extremely hard because the competition is very tough out there. But I mean, art is not about competition. It's about living your dream. But like I said, the first 10 years was, it was a bit of a nightmare. Yeah. And, uh, the last thing you were saying about, uh, young artists today, didn't spend so much time trying to promote their work through technology alone, but try and get their art in front of people's yes. eyeballs, as it were. So when you talk about art markets, um, are, you, are you talking about um, galleries or informal um, markets? More, 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 more art markets, like um, um, not flea markets. I'm just talking about art markets. I know there's one in um, Zoo Lake, um, and 
there's one in Pretoria. Um, I, I don't do art markets anymore. Um, it's been, oh, I don't know how many years. Um, but there's a couple of times that I've helped younger people that wants to start out and I've, and I, the first thing I do is I take them to art markets to, to give them the exposure of, of feedback from the public, you know, um, not just positive, but also negative feedback because you need that feedback and, um, you, you, for sure, you're not talking all to art, um, critics at that point. It's just normal general people that, that will discuss your work. So it's more art markets like just pure art, um, handmade art or anything in that sense. Mm-hmm. And I've always found that the best way to to actually sell your art really is for people to actually see it in real life because you can't appreciate it as fully on a computer screen as you can when you're standing in front of it. So all of that um, helps a lot. Definitely, yeah. Joe, tell us a little bit about your your paintings. What were, what are your um, inspirations and, and um, how would you describe your art if somebody is is coming across you for the first time my, my art is um was influenced by i mean it's obvious if you look at it there's a salvador dali influence there's the keith alexander influence um Hieronymus bosch it's 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 a collection of artists that have just stood up out for me over the years um some are known some are not known that known it's, it's just my way of expressing myself of, um, um, you, you learn from this artist a little bit, you learn from that artist a little bit, and from that artist, and you, you, you study their work, and eventually you start forming your own language, or, or the way, or the dialect that you speak your art. Um, mine will always be surrealistic. Sometimes I will veer a little bit in a different direction, but that's like I'm doing it at the moment right now. It's still surrealism, but I'm working now in the, in the old master technique, exactly more or less like the old masters used um, because I'm using my paints, especially it's not to show off my paint, but to show exactly the possibilities of using my paints as compared to modern day paints. Yeah, I was looking at some of your work earlier today and um, it's definitely the surrealist influence of um, Dali and uh, Marguerite as well, maybe a little bit. Um, Marguerite also, what, yes, that's, that's one of them. What struck me with your the other paintings I looked at immediately got the feeling that yes, it is surrealistic, but it is uh, you can see the, the African influence, the trees, I think the baobab trees, and also get the impression that um, nature, the delicate balance of the environment, is very important to you. Yeah, that area in the where I grew up, I've been in the Namak for countless times in the Kalahari as well. Um, I'm a nature person from, it's, it's just part of my, and I love nature, but for me, it is that delicate ba- balance. Even a desert, I've mentioned it somewhere on right now, that even a desert is littered with opportunity. If, if, right. if you are willing to see the embryonic potential in it, and that's just, that's the same thing with if you look at the youth today, you, artists need to be disciplined. Um, and it's the same with the, with the paint making thing is, that discipline was drilled into us. And I think today I'm very thankful for it. I mean, if you look at some of the youth today, that, 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 the, the lack of that discipline, I'm not breaking the youth down. That's what I'm saying. I'm just saying that you can see there is a, there is a lack of something. Um, and what I'm trying to say to also while I'm using that, mentioning the desert, that even the desert's letter, the opportunity. I see so many young people 
with great opportunities, but they don't, they just don't use it. With all the political changes happening in the country, we, we, everybody's complaining, you know, um, the economy that's going down south. I mean, yeah. um, you can make thousands of excuses, but then you get some that just stands out and they use a little bit of opportunity that they've that they've got around them and they make something out of it. And that's the same principle that I've used when I started with the painting, with, with the paints, basically. It's nature in, in one sense, but it's, it's so much that we can learn from nature. I mean, if you take a seat, if a seat, if, it's, if there's a seat lying in the ground, if a drop of water fell on that seed, um, seed that seed will grow. That seed, it's in its nature to grow. It, it, the seed can't say, ah, oh, now I'll grow in another year's time. I'll, I'll wait for more water. If, the, if that amount of water seeps through to the seed, it's in its nature to grow. And us as humans is, is the same. Um, I like that, Joe. And, you know, it is one of the things that, that I, I wanted to talk to you as well, because looking at what you've been doing with setting up paint manufacturing and etc., is uh, you've created something out of nothing a lot of the materials you've used are also scrap materials that's exactly the, that's exactly my point but before we get to that also the message that you are giving is there's so much opportunity people aren't using it but also perhaps getting a lot of people these days um, that are finding themselves without work or they've lost their jobs or they've been retrenched maybe finished school or even university and they can't get a job Day before yesterday, I met a young girl that's, um, that's, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give her personal art classes and I'm gonna help this kid to, she wants to art, she wants to do art. She's a brilliant musician. She plays 32 musical instruments. I thought, I asked her personally, ask her, why you want to do art when you've got this talent to play 32 different musical instruments? And she can't even read music. But, um, when I met her, I met a father and basically it's, it's not, I'm not 100% sure if he's retrenched or whether, or whether if he's retired or what. And we were spoken, speaking about, he was, I actually gave her a, a set of paints for, to, just to help her as a start and, and for motivation. And he was so totally taken by the, what, what, what I've achieved with, with the paints and the, and the, and, the, and but it turned out, um, he was working in the gold mines at that point, um, where they refine the gold to say, but he knows basically all the material they're working with. He knows about it. Paint making is such a broad spectrum. Um, it, it's from pottery. We, we were talking about, and he was talking about my paints and how I started, and I explained to him the whole story how it happened. And there was one problem that I've got is with a, we call it a ball mill. It's basically where the, um, if you take um, um, bone black for instance, um, after the bones were were, were charred, then it goes in. It, it get, first goes to a crush and then it goes into the ball mill. But at the moment, I'm I'm working on a ball mill that works with with tiny little zirconium um, balls that that. That does the milling with that it might, it breaks the, the pigment smaller and smaller and smaller. And I've got, I've got problems with it. And he just said, but Joe, why don't you go into, instead of using balls, use, you, to use metal rods, because that's what they've been using in the gold industry. Um, I, it just made sense to me exactly when he, when he, when he mentioned it to me. So there is now a possibility that I'm going to bring in your hand probably in the future sometime to help me further with the, with the, with the development of my paint, because I'm definitely going to need help in the near future but one but now there's already another job for somebody that was created almost out of nothing but he's retrenched or retired and wants to do something else again so maybe there's another option for for him to we can still say look i'm not at the end of my life yet i can still i can still make a contribution so but that's exactly my point. This is, there's so many people out there that with, with such great skills, but they just don't cross your path 
if I knew him when I started, it would have made my life for me a lot, lot easier. But, I mean... You just got to be aware. And uh, when you see an opportunity, don't uh, let it go by. Just take action. How did you get into making paint, Joe? It was during the 90s. Um, there was, uh, I actually went to an exhibition in, in Cape Town. We were living in Cape Town for a short period at that time. And I went to an exhibition at Sunlam, an art exhibition. And that's where I was introduced to the work of Stanislaw Scores. Um, now, he's hmm. not that known in South Africa, but Sunlam actually invested and they bought a lot of his paintings. Now, it's not modern art, but he, he calls it, he called it infra, infra realism. Um, it's, 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 it's maybe just a part of a leaf and then it turns and it's all colorful. I don't know if there's still reference of his work on the internet, uh, um, on, on, on Google. Um, but, but I've got a lot of information about him. But if you, if you ever get the chance to see Stanislaw's course work and the word, and you see the word infrarealism, then you will know exactly what I'm talking about. To just, to, to describe to anybody what he has achieved with pigments. And with paints, it's just when you, when you look at, at a piece of art that was done in brown or just burnt umber, the, the color is, the colors that he, he mixed into or how he built that color. I, I couldn't understand how, how it was possible that, that anybody can achieve such an effect just with pure paint. It is, it's, you can't describe it to anybody. If you ever get the privilege of seeing a Stanislaus course of, or have seen one, then you will understand exactly what I'm talking about. And it was about two years later, I followed it up, and about it was two years later that I actually met Stanislaus course. He was living in Nysna at that, at that point. And we moved to, we were living in Stolba, and then we moved to, um, lived in the, the mountains in wilderness. So I had access to, to, Closer uh, um, access to Stanislaus to Stanislaus course, and actually, I've been spent quite some time in his studio in Nice now. And we he actually died a couple of years. Um, uh, it wasn't sure. I think two thousand and two thousand and two, he died. He at the age of about sixty. I think he was sixty four at the time. But Stanislaus course, he's from actually from Poland, and he's from the old Russian school of. You know, we, we, you, you can't compare South African art schools to those art schools. You, there you're talking about art that's on a level that it's, it's in the stratosphere where we are still crapping around in the mud. Um, it was really the, the, the lecturers, everything is just, they, they just do it differently. It's a different old world, old school, um, education that, that they've got. But, um, he was, a, that was the first time in my life where, I mean, I was just used to ordinaries art paints or so and but that was the first time in my life when I actually when somebody made brought my attention to the difference between old school paint old masters paint and modern day paint and how much it has changed and Stanislaus course he actually mentioned something to me at that point and it, it kept stuck in my head and that was the particle size of pigments today compared to um the synthetic pigments that that are produced produced today the, the particle size was a lot larger so you get a better reflection in 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 some sense um or to a quite a quite a large extent and the cpvc the critical pigment volume concentration is different on the refractive end i, I don't want to go too, into too much technical technical side of it but he explained to me well the reflective value of larger particle pigments and how why you can't achieve it with modern day paints so that became a starting point and from time to time you know it's close to closest place where i could 
bought paints at that point was in 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 um in George, but George is a small town, and I mean they don't always stock um pre- premium quality artist paints. It's mostly basically what you get there is in the hardware shops, and this uh, there was later on a a, a, a doc, um another place that started selling um art materials, but it was still a problem getting out of proper um Winston and Newton white paint for instance you know um i'm not talking about students here i'm talking about the the the, the premium artist quality paints that that cost 900 rand for or seven eight hundred rand for for 200 mils um well it's basic so from time to time i keep running out of paint and then i have to wait till i get to cape town it wasn't always so easy to get all of the couriers i mean we were living in the mountains literally from time to time i keep running out of paint and then one day I was just sitting there and there was a small dam and there's a, f- a young guy, um, Stephen van der Waal, um, this guy actually, it's neighbors of us and he came to me and he asked me, he said to me, Joe, we were sitting next to the dam, he said to me, Joe, but why don't you make your own paints? And I said to him, oh, Stephen, I've been thinking about it and I've been playing around with it, but uh, you know, there's so much techni- technicality, I don't think I'll ever be able to achieve it. But I, but then I started. That was about, um, yeah, I think it was about 17, 18 years ago. And then I started, I got all of titanium and I started making titanium. At that point, I was still, I was already making my own oils. So, um, then I just started making my own white paints and a little bit of pigment that I could get around that was just around, um, um, and just started making my own pigments. But I never ran out of white paint. I always had, good quality white paint that I made myself. Also with the genuine flake white I was making at that point myself. So basically that's what, when it started or how it started. The problem at that point was that the internet wasn't so um, clued up as it is today where if you want to do research on any mineral or any chemical, you just type and go in Google and you get it and um, it, it, it's just all the information is just there. But at that point... Um, there weren't all that information and slowly but surely I started collecting all this material and started building up for me files and files and files. There was actually a, a Damien.org. It's a website. Um, I think, it, I think it was a Dr. Boone. I'm not, I can't remember what his name was, but he started Damien.org and I've probably downloaded that whole everything on Damien.org, but the information there was like total gold. It was, it was art books information from art books that was just mm. I, I'm still working through it and trying to decipher all the, the to get more information I've got, I've got fast loads and loads of files of it but after he died um, the, the Damien.org just disappeared um, it went off they took it off I think a university in America took it over so that was a great source of information for me especially regarding old masters pigments and how they made paint and the difference between today's paints and modern day paints and the information was just it, it, it it's enormous so that was basically how it started so Joe how do you find the actual raw materials pigments are basically it's all around us I mean clay for instance you can walk into a pottery shop um, the clay that that's pigment. Um, it's it's literally it's all around you. Uh, if you um, iron oxide, I mean, <laughs> you can just go outside and look at a piece of iron and rub on it, and you'll get iron oxide, mm. the yellow or the orange or the red. I mean, um, iron oxide, red iron oxide is the oldest pigment of all the pigments in the world. That is the oldest. That was the first used by prehistoric man. It it is mm. the oldest pigment in the world. But um. Other things has happened. We, we, we just recently went to exhibition in Christiana, a place in Christiana. So the, the, the diamond miners, they mine for, for diamonds. 
in the whole of the Western Transvaal, that whole area. Now, if you go, if you go and search, if, if I said to you, okay, let's go and search for pigment, um, a, a, another, or let's just go walk into nature, let's go and search for pigment. You can walk across probably 10, 15 different kinds of pigments without realizing it's underneath your feet. Um, because you can't, you can't actually see it. But then I started realizing something. Um, when I was looking at the, at the Val River, um, because um, I, I mean, Schweizerienica, that is also a diamond area. So I know some people in that area that, that helped me a lot. But if you look at the width of the, the, the Val River, how it flowed and how it changed its direction over thousands and thousands of years. Um, if you go into any diamond mine site today, those diamond miners, they're just after one thing and that's diamonds. But they're actually digging past the most awesome if you go and stand in one of those holes and you look at the, the, how the river changed and the deposits, um, of Sienna's umbers and all the, it's just, to me, it's gold. It's, to me, it's more worth than, than the diamonds, it's probably the diamonds itself. But, um, that's a great source of pigment for me. During that exhibition in Christiana, we actually went on the, on a boat ride and people were taking us out for a braai on the, on the Val River. And we came around a bend and, the, the the person who was driving the boat, he said, no joke, get off the boat because even though he knew I was making the paint. He said to me, just walk there on the, that sandbank and walk two meet, to about two meters into the water and just wiggle your feet and see what you see. Because they discovered, his, their, their kids, um, grandchildren actually discovered it during that December holiday. So I walked into and, and I started tapping my feet in the water. And the next moment, this most awesome Yellow ochre, but it's not a yellow ochre. It's more a mustard greeny kind of yellow ochre. It just came out of the water. I took a couple of hands full of it and I started um, washing the, the pigment out of the water. Now, that's, that's definitely going to become one of my color pigments in the future. So, I mean, South Africa is blessed with so much minerals, so much in, in our nature, just, just South Africa. I'm not even talking about Zimbabwe, Namibia, Botswana, and that area is also included. I mean, for every kilogram of raw umber, of raw sienna that they can mine in, in French, French sienna, French or Spanish raw umber or whatever, we can probably do the same times a thousand. It's just that we don't know about that pigment, where it is or how to discover. You literally have to discover it. And so if you go and search for it, then, then you will find it, but you have to go and search in the right places. And that was where the, where the, um, diamond mining industry was, was a, a great indicator for me. And, and you go into that mines and you see all these di cross dissections into the earth. So you can literally see this, there's the pigment and you can do the test right there. And, um, this country's got a wealth of pigmentation. Um, um, there's no doubt about that. Right. So, but that's basically one way of discovering. It's like the one under the water. And another thing about like, like with, um, especially with yellow ochre. Um, if you, if, if you, if yellow ochre iron oxide or so, if, 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 if it's lays, if you can put it in oil mm -hmm. for approximately 20 to 30 years, then you will get the most awesome pigment that you possibly can hope for. Okay. So the, the raw materials, especially the earth colors, I presume are extremely abundant in, in South Africa. Now you have to turn that into paint. And I presume that you couldn't find that machinery in South Africa, so it looks like you had to build it all yourself. I, I couldn't find it. Um, I was looking at it. But you see something else. When I started this whole thing, I had two options. I, I had to get investors that had to believe in me, 
or I had to go and borrow the money to be able to buy those machines. But I'm always, I've always been a person who does things my own way and then this. So, but when I started out with this whole thing, look, if, if, if South African artists think that I just did this for, for the money or to, to earn a great income, it, that is not the truth. The actual truth about it is I always knew that it will give me some kind of a, uh, um, income, but my paintings is doing quite well internationally. So it's not that I'm paying for fame or fortune. The thing is just my paintings do sell quite well. The paint making was more of a, a, a a passion, um, um, I just love it. It's just, it, it, it just makes sense to me to make paint <laughs> it, uh, and pigments as well. Because normally paint makers is not pigment makers and pigment makers is not paint makers. So I fall into a category where I can make the pigment and I can, I enjoy both of them. And because I've been an artist for 37 years, 38 years, um, it's, you, you know, actually what is good paint or what is not good paint. So the, the, the growth over the last 17 years, my knowledge growth with pigmentation and paints and paints in general has grown with my art. So, and you started um, looking and trying to understand it better and to get a better understanding of what is, what the changes is between today's paint, modern day paint and the old master's paint. And the remember what I was telling to you about Stanislaus course, what he told me about and where I also can see today the difference of the paints that we are getting today, all the synthetic, most synthetic pigments as compared to what we've had in the eighties um, and, and nineties. And, but because I think it was around about the 1970s that paint really started changing it towards um, um, m- mostly synthetic pigments. Mm. Um, so when I started this whole thing, it was the paint and it was uh, the passion for it. But I also said that I have to, I'm, I'm definitely in the future, I'm going to bring in, it's a job, also a job creation for other younger people, but also to show them that you don't need all that millions of money and thousands and hundreds of thousands to buy, go and buy these machines is the, if you go into any, um, scrapyard today, if you look at the, uh, the, the kind of machines they're throwing away and the pieces of scrap iron they're throwing away, it's just lying there and you get it, you get it at, at a, at a ridiculous price of, you know, per kilogram. Um, so if you can just think a little bit, look at the opportunities around you and start making something with out of, out of nothing and start building because Anything that everybody has ever done, you can do, and if everything is possible. So if you take it from that point, that that's also a reason why I started making all these machines. I will rebuild some of them in in, in the future to get a, to get them to function better and work better, and have maybe engineering places help me with the things because the tools that I've also used, I've not forced myself, but in some sense, I, I only use an angle grinder, a welder, and and any mandrel. That's all I've used, and um, so. It's, there were some engineers who, who was, uh, that I went to for advice, so they told me straight away, you're not going to be able to do this. It's not going to work. But it's working. So the, my point, that's my point. Um, you have to look at opportunities and don't complain that there is not enough opportunity. There is opportunities. So it's also to help other young people out there so that they can learn and see it is possible to do something out of nothing. So I've had a look at um, some of your videos. You've made these... Um Fantastic machines. Are you all um, self-taught in manufacturing these machines? My dad used to work a lot with, with metal work. I mostly I was mostly doing woodwork all my life when I was a child. Or but I've got no education in that field. It's just common sense mm-hmm. and luck. I can say. And, and you ask you ask people for advice also. If you don't know, there's always somebody that you can go and ask, and they will give you the right advice. You just have to ask. 
for people who are interested in in what goes into actually making up artist quality paint, you know the composition of artist quality paint is quite simple. Um, a pigment, it could be as you mentioned, um, crushed rock to make yellow ochre, and then you mix that in with linseed oil. Technically, it should be you know fairly simple in concept, but when you go to an, an art shop and you buy paint today, what you're getting in the tube isn't just pigment and linseed oil. What actually goes into the average artist paint that people are buying these days? You see, you have to look at the difference between student series paint and which most South African artists use is student, student series paint and the overpriced. We are totally overpriced in this country. Paints are in general are very expensive, but the old master's paint and the higher quality paints is basically just oil, a binder, and it, that can be um, poppy oil, walnut oil, linseed oil, safflower oil, and pigment. There is a, a, a rule of, they talk about a 4 to 5%. It's about, that is additives or um, waxes or something that the paint company will put into their paint, but that's almost their trade secret. They, they won't say that they add it. It's also if you add less than or that 4% things that you add into your paint, then you don't have to, the, the paint makers, the paint factories don't have to put that on the tube, that that is a, co- a content. If it's, for instance, if it's aluminum stearis that they add, and that's in all paints, or, or even Michael Harding, uh, aluminum, they, they do put aluminum stearis in. Um, you see, the, the thing is, the, the, the big, the big, the big brand names, they work at such a, such a output rate that the one thing that they don't have is time. Mm. Um, time is a big factor in making paint. And especially when you work with old traditional masters paint, then time becomes a critical factor. And that's why they all, they add all these steroids in. But steroids, the steroids, um, also the fatty acids, it's also in linseed oil. But the majority of the oils that the, um, the big manufacturer use is, is, um, alkali refined, um, linseed oil. Um, it's, and it can be blends of oil, depends on, um, which, if it's burnt umber and raw umber, which is a, a very fast drying pigment. So if they want to get it to, it's, they say it's bind, bind in linseed oil, but if they want to get it to dry a little bit slower, to be more, in line with, with cadmium yellow or cadmium orange or so to dry at more or less the same rate, then they add like, for, for instance, pop, uh, poppy seed oil with, with a, with a, um, linseed oil to make it dry slightly slower. But they don't say on the tube it's a mixture of this oil with linseed with poppy oil. That is just a, it's like a 3% that they might add. So, they but what's on the tube is that they don't always specify exactly what's on the tube. Is that 4%? But what has happened over the last couple of years is that 4% has been stretched now to nearly 20%. And more and more, these big manufacturers put anything into their paint. It, it is, it, it's just the way that, the, that, that, um, it, it is developed over the years. Um, they, they're just trying to, to add waxes and everything to save money. It's, they constantly search, and money is always a big factor. I mean, th- those companies always, they, they do have the pride in their, in their product to try and keep it like Michael Harding, for instance, but there is things that is, that's, that's really, really going wrong in the, in the whole of the paint manufacturing business at this, at this point in time. So when you talk about the, the, the premium artist quality paints, Vasari, um, 
Rublev, Michael Harding, they put very little additives in, and but a very high pigment concentration, as opposed to where the student series paints are loaded with calcium additives, um, stereos, aluminium stereos. Um, there's just so many waxes that's available, modern day waxes that's available. But this is not, it's, those things are not time proven. It's not like the old master's paint. But if you want, one of the reasons why these big companies can't make paint anymore, like, um, like the old masters did or in that, from that period or is, is the time factor. Because if you, if you make paint like, like Rublev is making it at the moment and the, the, the same way that I've started making my paint is you have to rely on one big factor and that factor is time. So you don't, you, you, you don't have all that additives to put into the paint to make it more, um, paintable or usable. Or those. So you have to rely on time. The paint have to stand in that oil for four to five, depending on which pigment it is, for a, quite a long while. For it, it can stand in that oil for months. That is before that it's mold mixed, but then it stands like that. And only after four to five months, then the paint the, it becomes uh, there's just some magic that happened while it's standing, and then it becomes possible to make good quality paint from it but so you have to you 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 can't rely on using all that additives modern day additives so you have to, if you want to make it like the old masters it so you have to rely on time um and that's that's a great big factor what that's that's different between what the paints that i make and the uh, rublev definitely and the same route that i've taken with my paint for me when i started i had the choice to go the route of making the same paints as the chinese are making or all the other paint makers. And, but because when I come back to, um, Stanislaus course, what he taught me about the, the, the bigger pigment than this is, and it was just for me that I personally feel that there is, look, it's fine with the ochres and the umbers and, and, and that natural minerals that you can get out of the ground. But there's so many of our other minerals, um, that's, Chromium, for instance, that gets exported to China. It's turned into pigment and then the pigment's exported back to South Africa. You know, it's, uh, the, uh, if you look at um, uh, manganese, um, the manganese mines in 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 northern Transvaal, it's the same thing. They, they actually, at some point, uh, I read on one of their Facebook page, uh, not fa- on the on the um, website pages, that they were thinking of going into the uh, to develop pigments f- um, and to, to to look at and export it because I mean, there's, there's there's quite a lot of pigments that you can get from from the from manganese itself. Um, Pyrolite, for um, basically, um, for for instance, I mean, pyro red comes from pyro um, thing. But we export all these things. Um, why why can't we also start manufacturing um, pigments? And if you look at the total amount of turnover of pigments globally, it is beyond the enormous. I think it's in the region of forty to fifty billion on a yearly turnover. I mean, um, that is, and but now another thing is of all the pigmentation that was that's, that's produced in the world today. What artists don't realize, you, you walk into an art shop and you see art, you see pigments, you see paint, and you see lots of pigments and lots of different paints. And then in your head, your, your perception is, okay, artist pigment paints is something unique, something that it's not. It's all the development of pigment. The, the artist paint makes less than 0.5% of the total consumption of pigments that's produced worldwide, globally. We, we make up, artists make up less than 0.5%. The rest goes into car paint, house paints, plastics. That's where the pigments go. So this, this, 
in some sense they cater for the artist, but there's so many pigments that's literally disappeared off the market. Um, because there's the, the art market for it is to, just, just the art to, to, to supply the art market. It's too small. Um, they can't really make a profit out of it. So there's, there's the excellent paint pigments that's busy disappearing off the market at an accelerating rate. There's new ones coming along, but basically all that's coming up is just synthetic pigments. So, Joe, are you, you're saying that if it is possible for artists to have excellent quality paint at an affordable price, it just means that uh, somebody like you has had to actually get started and make the stuff. There is no reason why artists should be paying up to, uh, as you said, 700, 800 rand for a tube of paint anymore. Do you think it's um, artists are being ripped off for a long time? Definitely, most definitely. I, I just recently spoke, uh, maybe I should not name a brand name, but to one of the well, more well-known brands in South Africa. Um, she was busy unpacking in an art store, and I had one of my tubes with me, and I started talking to her about the pigments. And she, she's from, she's a, um, from Italian woman. Um, working, she's basically one of the main reps in South Africa. And I said to her, I started making paint, and we started talking about it. And then she said, no, 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 she don't have even close my knowledge on on the level that I was talking about, but um, the, the thing is, when, when she, she said to me that it's unbelievable, amazing what I've done, she she couldn't believe that it's possible that somebody in South Africa could do it. It's not, it's it's, and I mean, if, actually, if you look at and the, the old masters, they all made their own paints, and, and there's still that thing of making your own paints are busy getting a lot of um, momentum in Europe again. Um, there's Facebook page references to it as well. Um, groups that have started making their own handmade paints. It's, they can't make all the colors, but, but that's, it's, it's possible for everybody to do it because it's been done for, mm. for millenniums. I mean, we, we just fell into, in, in our modern day times of, you, you walk into shop and you, you easily walk out. It's just the, the convenience. Um, um, we're basically becoming dummies. We, we don't want to use our hands. We don't want to use our brains anymore. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think if, if artists, if they can just play around a bit with a little bit of pigment, a little bit of oil, just to understand the process better, then that'll, it's also going to be educational for them and they're going to understand their paint, what they're actually painting better. So, um, we've, we've become divorced of understanding pigments and understanding binders. I mean, if you look at some, some on, on the, on the side of the tubes, you'll always see that it's, it's made with linseed oil or safflower oil or this oil or that. The latent, latest tendencies, some of these big manufacturers, they don't even say it's, um, it's linseed binding, the pigments bind linseed oil or safflower oil or whatever oil. They just say it's a blend of oils. Now that, that blend of oils, what basically is happening now is they're busy putting sunflower oil in the, in the, in their paints. Um, it would be mixed with, it's, it's a mixture of sunflower with, um, sunflower oils, which is a lot cheaper, um, with, um, um, linseed oils. So they, it's a blend, but they don't say what blend it is. So it can be anything that's in there. And then I'll be, then, then I'll be, I'm, I'm really, usually very cautious about that. But you see, I mean, saf, uh, um, 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 sunflower oil can create problems in paint within a very, very, within two to three years, you can already, you, there's already problems starting. Um, it's, it's a lot of different things that happen, but because the people don't physically work with pigments and paints anymore in the sense of just take a little bit of, go to a, a hardware shop, buy some yellow ochre and get, get, take some oil and just mix it. But take a 
piece of a glass or a rock or something, put it on a slab of glass, just play around with it and just see what happens. And and people don't, they just, they, they've, they've become totally divorced from, from their craft actually in some sense. Because the paint has always been over the years, that was part of the, for the old masters, it was part of their craft, was their paint making thing. And even when the, when the, when they started making, in the 18th century, when, when the paint makers started making paints and started tubing this during the Renaissance period or, or, and that, um, the, the, the art, the artists at that point, the true artists, they still made their own paints. Even when it was available in pig's bladders or so, they, they still continue to make their own paints. Yeah, absolutely. Um, those old masters had to belong to, um, the apothecary guild. Because they were basically chemists um, making their own paint. You don't know how to make your materials. Joe, you've brought out a, a series now of earth colors, and uh, you've got a whole a bunch of them for sale at the moment. How can uh, people get hold of you to to purchase these? Oh, they, they can just co contact me through Facebook. Basically, these you know, there's a couple of distributors that have contacted me um, that's, that's really interested in, in, in selling my paints. But the problem for me is because it, on, on, mine is truly handmade. Um, and it's not just the paints that are handmade, it's also the pigments. Um, I have to grind that pigments up myself. I have to mill them up. It is a long process. In, in between doing, um, doing that, um, there's also a lot of research that I'm working on. I mean, um, I'm, I'm a, currently I'm working on developing um, Indian yellow. My, taking all the patents are there on the internet. It can the patents are from 1910. There's so many patents how to make Indian yellow. It is a complicated thing how to make, but to make Indian pigment, pigment, I want to make it myself. Um, because I want to understand the pigment. Some pigments I will definitely buy, but there's another pigment that I've been working on. Um, for three years now, and it took me literally three years, and it was a happy accident that I actually cracked it. Um, it, it you don't get CPR in in student series paints, and you, uh, there's very little. I think Winston and Newton's got, and Rembrandt's also got CPR. Um, I'm not sure with Michael Harding if he's got CPR, but you see, most CPRs today, CPR originated from the cuttlefish. That, that's when they uh, the the main CPR. Can, CPR is uh, the darkest brown, close to black, but most manufacturers today will take um, burnt umber and black and they will mix it. It's the same as with your uh, Van Dyke Brown, for instance. Um, but the, the, the genius CPR came from the cuttlefish. Um, okay, it, they, they don't make it anymore. It's just, it's it's not possible to to do it on such a scale anymore. They, they use peat as well, rotten peat. It's also used in Van Dyke Brown is, is rotten peat. Um Piece of, I was done doing some research on, especially on CP at some point, and I came across something that Leonardo da Vinci wrote. But he was, he was making a reference to sepia and the aloe vera plant. But like with many of his uh, writings, not everything is completed. And it was just like four or five sentences where he was making a reference to, to sepia. Now, I mean, you also have to understand that the, the old masters, if you, if you bring that into perspective, they didn't wake up just one morning and when they started their art and there was pigments available all around them and they started they've learned from the old monks the monks did all these um for years the monks developed pigments that were, that they used in this, the, the, those those big um um let, colorful letterings that they've made in when they're in their, their bible writings or what so a lot of the knowledge that that the old masters got actually came from 
um, from the monks. And the monks shared there with the, all their travels. One, one pigment maker for, for, in the, for the monks might travel to another area and another area and another area. And that's how it started. The knowledge started getting into, um, for the, for the old masters. But in that sense, Leonardo was, was referring to, to, CPR from, from Aluvera, from the Aluvera plant. Now I'm working at the moment, I'm working with, with Madden, like the plants are here, I will probably harvest the, might put the first harvest, I'm, I'm busy harvesting it, but the first pigment will probably in a couple of months, but the, the first genuine, like Madden, like pigment will be available in a couple, a couple of months time. But genuine Madden, like, uh, alazarine crimson is Quanica drown. And, I was play, okay, but that's another take. But I was working around this, and I'm trying to understand. It is a like pigment, but I'll, I'll come back to like pigments for that people understand slightly a bit better. It's like pigments are from plant, um, but and then there's a carrier. Um, matter like, for instance, are precipitated onto aluminium hydride, and that becomes your pigment. Aluminium hydride is a is a very um, translucent. Um, it's, it's basically volcanic ash in some sense. Yeah, it's basically volcanic ash, aluminium hydride. But, um, so it's, it's the, 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 the plant material, the, the, the milky side for its, um, color is transferred to a pigment carrier. In this case, it's, um, um, aluminium hydride in, uh, with alizarin crimson. But I was playing around with, with aloe vera and trying to understand what Vinci was referring to, what he was getting an unbelievable Beautiful sepia from, and he used it in his work. It is, it, and I couldn't understand. I've played around with it and I've played about for three years and after three years now I've cracked it. It's the most awesome, intense sepia translucent. It's just, you can't explain it to somebody, but to get it now into the crystalline form and to, to, into a pigment form, that was now, that was a bit of a challenge, but it, that, that's another pigment that I will also have available in the market. And I don't think there's any other manufacturer in the world that, that, that makes CPR from aloe vera plant. And it is totally possible and it's okay. proven because Da Vinci's work is proven that, I mean, it will last. Um, oh, well, that's, that sounds fantastic. Joe, I've been curious to find out a bit more about white. You, you've made titanium white, but uh, you've also uh, working on, I think, flake white. And I'm, I've, I make titanium, but my titanium is different. Rublev also don't use any zinc in the titanium white paint. Now, um, there's a couple of manufacturers. Uh, Michael Hardy, if you go to Michael Harding's web, web page, you'll see somewhere in the, uh, I think it's in the white paint section. He's also referring to now the problems that start with zinc, but they will follow and see what the development is from there on and what they're going to do to try and, um, get past zinc. But, but zinc are in all recipe paint recipes. So zinc, if you look at titanium paint today, there is a zinc content in. You can't make paint just with titanium. It is impossible. You have to add that something to, to make it more paintable or, or, than this. Um, but, um, another paint manufacturer is thinking Williamsburg have also now completely, they've changed, they've cut out all zinc in their paints. Zinc is, is poison in a sense, since it, it can create uh, even as little as 3.6%. A zinc content in paint can already lead to excessive cracking within the first 
five to six years in your paint. You won't always see it, or but if you keep it in the light and you look from the back, they, that is a problem with zinc. And zinc is mixed into yellows, potassium dichromate, um, uh, just plain yellow, the old school bus yellow. It's potassium dichromate that's precipit precipitated onto um, onto zinc. So it's still you, it's, you still got you get the yellow, but you, it's zinc yellow actually in some sense. So mm -hmm. the zinc becomes a carrier. Um, so zinc is a big problem. And what I've done is what what um, Rublev paints also done is how to get away from from using zinc in your white paint. And he came up with the answer to you was to use lithopone. Now lithopone is um is probably for for two hundred years it was even more popular than flake white. It was it's basically um barium sulfate and barium barium sulfate and zinc sulfate. It's not not zinc oxide zinc sulfate. So there's a there is a difference between them. That's lithopone, it's also known as porcelain white. Um but so we took the, the route of, of using barium sulfate with titanium. Because barium, uh, lithopone was for like 200 years, it was more popular than, 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 than flake white and, and the other, that was before the other paints came, uh, came on the market. Titanium took, the titanium production took over completely, uh, globally. I mean, it's produced today in hundreds of millions of tons per year. But so the, the titanium white now contains barium sulfate and not zinc. So my, there is a difference with my paint in, in that sense. Um, Michael Harding's already referring to, he's probably going to start making changes also soon. Um, he will probably follow Williamsburg. So the big manufacturers have waken up. There is problem with zinc in paint. So they've, they've got to come up with another artist, but with another um, um, replacement. Luckily for me, I just started, I'm not that big, so it's easy for me to start small, um, to, to do the, the, the changes and, and not, not to take their route to use zinc in my paints. That's the one paint. The other paint that I'm making is, is flake white as an alternative flake white. Now, what you do there is, because flake white is, there's no better pigment than flake white. The genuine, um, um, flake white that's made the old traditional way of horse manure and, um, that's rusted in, um, with, with acetic acid, 30% acetic acid. So there is just not, there's some marriage between flake white, um, lead, lead oxide and linseed oil. There's just something that happens between them that makes it the best. The, there's no better pigment than, than that available. As long as artists follow good principles when working with it, it won't bite you, it won't attack you, it won't kill you. If you eat it, it will. But eat enough burnt umber and you're also going to get sick. So um, this whole thing with, with lead, lead and lead in paint has been blown out of totally out of proportion, and especially in the art market um, for artists. Um, house paints, that I can understand, because there's a lot of sanding going on of old walls and you breathe in that all that dust or so. But for artist paints, it is not, that they, they shouldn't be that scared. And the, I can just advise artists who have never worked with um, genuine flake white, just try it once. You will. I'm working with it now. And every day, I just had a discussion a day ago about with another artist um, who's also a surrealistic artist painter. And he also said to me, Joe, I, I can't believe that was the first time in his life he worked with, with, with a genuine flake white. It, it is, you can't describe the, the, the way that the paint handles. It's just different than... Titanium, you, you can't do with titanium, but you can do with, with, with genuine flake white. So the flake white is one, but because of the, the, the problem for, for some people to work with, with, with flake white, I've made an alternative flake white. Now what I've done there is I've also used, um, a, a little bit of titanium. It is on the, on the tube and, um, power is based also, also based on lithopone, but there, because to, to get that same properties, 
uh, or handling properties of flake white. They use, I also use in different of my other paints is because you don't manufacture paints like the big paint manufacturers that mix A, B, and C, and D, and X, Y, and Z waxes that goes in and it goes in the mold and out comes paint the other side. So it's a time factor that you have to rely on. But the other thing that comes into play is you work with different oils um, and linseed oils. Uh, that's some of uh, different stand oils. That's one has been standing for 20 days, one 30 days, one 50 days or 60 or 90 days. So you work with this different viscosities. Now, that, back to the white paint that I was explaining to you is to get the same problem property handling with with flake white alternative basically what you do is you've used a, i've used a mixture of 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 linseed oil with different viscosities to give you that same feel i've done that with a couple of my other colors as well also to get that thixotropic effect that that's that's so popular with the with the old masters and with the with the it is it, just a difference in the paint but that's one way of making, of being able to make paint to get away from waxes is to use different linseed oil with different viscosities that you mix till you get the right mixture. So that's the three different whites that I'm working on. I'm busy working on two other whites that I'll probably, I'm still considering, I'm still doing tests on them just to see that I get it right. Um, the one is a mica, a, a, a mica white. Total different, um, especially for people that, that work modern or that paint flowers or something i'm just uh, it, it 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 you can't explain how me how, how that mika creates a, a different white it's just it's got a, again a total different property than titanium or or flake white but flake white will always be the best of all there's no comparison if you've never worked with it try it once you you won't regret it it is it is just a pleasure to paint with it and it is the most most rugged of all the of all the paints. There's nothing. If if you build up your painting from from the bottom up, um, white paint get mixed into all your other paints. And um, so if you build it up with if you start mixing zinc at some point into your painting, so you on top of your your the flake whites that you've used or titanium what you've used, then you're busy creating a weak point in that painting. You won't see it now, but it it is it it it's there and it will happen and it will increase in problems over time but zinc uh, uh, flake white because it's mixed into your other colors over the over all of your painting it, it actually th that good property of flake white carries over to the other pigments and it creates just a, a much stronger paint form well, that sounds fantastic as well um so i definitely i'm going to be trying some of your flake whites very soon when you're talking about safety precautions i know it's a big issue for a lot of artists that are worried about it. Um, do you suggest that um, they should be wearing something like latex gloves when they're handling their paint? Is that uh, will that take care of any safety issues? It's always good to have good good painting principle in place. If you if if you prefer to work with gloves, a lot of artists do that. I'll advise it personally. I can't do it. I don't do it. And um, when I work with my flake whites in general. Uh, you mix it with a palette knife. You try not to get the paints on your hand. Um, they say it can be absorbed through your skin, but it won't be, it's not that easy because it's bind in oil. So it's not that delicious. If you're stupid to go and rub your hands with the paints, you're going to have problems. Like I say, with any other, it can be any other pigments. 
um, you can develop an allergic reaction, especially when you, when you take into consideration that all, basically all the pigments today are chemically produced. So, and there are some very, very extremely harsh chemicals that is used in that production process. And there is still leftovers of that chemicals in it. So, it's, yes, it's always good principles to when you, if you want to wear gloves. If you don't want to wear gloves, like I do, just make sure that you, you don't, you, just work properly, clean your brushes properly, wipe it off properly, and try not to, Get in touch with the paint as much as you as much as you can, and that goes for for all for all basically all colors. But lead white won't attack you. It won't if it's just especially people that got young kids around. I won't advise that. That I mean, it can happen. I also had two kids. Kids came, they put their fingers in, play with the paint while you're not not looking. But again, they have good principles. When you work with it white, put it aside so that kids cannot. But you don't always look. But in that sense, if you've got small kids and you don't want to take that risk use the alternative one I, I'd much rather advise that to you to do that but if you're a more professional or older artist like I am um, by all means do it try flake white you'll never regret it what about the cadmiums and cobalts are you going to be able to make any of those is that possible as well I won't be able to make the pigments myself um, the problem with cadmiums is they, they are extremely expensive and for a small manufacturer if, if I start making the cadmium colors, the, the problem for me is because you can't buy um, pigment at the scale that the big manufacturer does. It gives you a much better price or, or this. It's not impossible that I'm not, or I'm not saying that I'm not going to do it. I'm still looking at the options. I'm still looking at, but I want good quality um, pigment that I can use. I, I, I definitely want to make it. But there are other options as well. I mean, if you look at Hansa Yellow, Hansa Yellow is, a, is, is, is similar in you to cadmium yellow, but Hansa is transparent, brighter, and has more tinting strength, and it goes a lot further in mixtures mixtures than than, than uh, cadmium yellow. So there are other pigments that basically coming on the market that is relatively a lot cheaper than the cadmium colors. If I stumble on some supplier that can supply it for me at a reasonable price, I will I will make it. But there's one thing that I won't make. I, I won't take cadmium colors and put mix mix it clumps a, a, a lot of like with this most student series paints and some of the major manufacturers also they put a lot of additives in the cadmium colors. I want to keep the paint true to the old masters. But they like I say there's other yellows that that are very at this point that's very comparable to 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 the cadmium colors. There's this um I don't know if you're familiar with 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 um, um, Maya blue. No, I'm not. It's a it, it's a new blue. Basically, what's happened? It it, it comes from indigo. Um, the Mayans the Mayans developed a, a blue pigment that it was painted on their temples, and they found that it's been there for thousands of years, and it's still the same intensity of blue that it was the day it was painted. But basically, what the Mayans did was they they've, they've done research for I think it took, took them fifty years before they actually cracked it. But the Mayans made a picture of precipitation onto polygorskite clay, uh, basically a volcanic type of a volcanic ash, where they've transfer it's a nanoparticle where they've trans transfer the the indigo onto the um onto this polygorskite clay, and it goes in all the crevices. You see, you get a new pigment with the just amazing reflect it's amazing on reflective um properties but it's also it's extremely resistant uh, resistant to alkalis acids and and chemical solvents and what they've done now is now they've looked at 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 other like pigments but in general people 
were complaining about lake pigments because the color might fade like with Jenny and Mother Lake. They've taken the route now what the Myers did. Um, it's a company in America that has, they've taken out a lot of patents, but it, uh, around that, that's, that's, there's ways around it. Um, if you don't follow the exact same route, because there's another company now also that's making also that um, Mayan blue, but they're just calling it Mexican blue. So um, it's not the same, it's, but it's exactly the same. It's made from indigo, and it's exactly the same way that the Mayans did it. They use just a slightly different process. But they, they, we, we, now when you get yellow plant materials, like pigments, that's and, and some are synthetic as well, that they're using the same principle of of a mixture or, or uh, precipitation onto the, that polygoskite clay. So you get, now you're going to get yellows and oranges that's busy coming onto the market now that can have the same properties as cadmium colors can. Mm. Um, yeah. And the same light fastness is even, even better comparable. So the, the I will look at cadmiums in the future, but I'm also looking at other yellows and other oranges and the reds and right. the, and the blue the blues included. Yeah. Oh, that will be that will be fantastic because um, we can't wait to actually get access to these colours and colours that haven't been um, used probably by um, South African artists anyway. And if we can get a, a full range of or colours colours that most artists are used to, I think you're going to find them to be extremely popular. Have you, have you tried working painting with my paint set? I have, Joe. I've the, the difference lies in the behavior. I don't know if you're totally different than modern day paints. It's not the same as synthetic pigments. No. It's the it's it's difficult to explain. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually going to be including a um, demonstration. Um, of your paints, and uh, I'll be putting that on my blog hopefully in during next week. But um, there's a, there's all sorts of uh, differences in the feel of the paint, and uh, the strength of the paint is quite significant. But um, I'll I'll be showing all of that on on video as well, so people can see that on. And and then um, if anyone wants to. Um, try out the paints for themselves. They can get hold of you at uh, Joe Joubert Oil Paints on uh, Facebook and uh, order directly from you. And I'm sure you're going to get a lot more orders, Joe. So I hope you're ready to, to make lots of paint. It was three extremely intensive years that I've worked on it. My own paint work has been neglected, but, um, but it was worth it. And I mean, what I've learned so far, what I'm daily when I'm experimenting, what I'm more, I've, I can only improve from this point on. So, but like I said, pe people that, that use my paint, that shouldn't expect that, that like that it's a student paint or it's a, it mixed with all other paints. Actually, in some sense, it enhances other paints. It makes it a, a stronger painting for you. Create a stronger painting form. Um, if you if you look at the chemical soup that's created when using all most synthetic pigments, the chemical soup becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. But with the paints, when you use my paints and you just add one or two colors, you see the direction that it goes, but it's easy to get to a certain point. It's not an intermixing of five or three or four different colors to, to get to a certain color. But there will be more colors in the series, and I can only say is people have to try it themselves. I can't explain to them. But thank you. If I really appreciate um the, the the instructional video or the video inform, informative video that you're doing about it but like i said there's always room for improvement and i'm also only learning and it's not just things you get out of books you have to you have to 
it's it's daily, daily, daily. You have to experiment. And you have to experiment, and it's a it's a steep learning right. curve. Um, Joe, I, all I can say is that uh, I wish you a lot of luck, and really uh, do appreciate the paints that I've been able to get from you already enjoyed using and uh, as i said i'm going to be putting up uh, some videos shortly on my website as well and uh, encourage people to contact you and try out even if it is just to try out the the white paint that you are making and then to move on from there so i want to also um, thank you joe for uh, joining me on this um, podcast and hopefully getting the message out there to people about what you are doing and, and the good work that you are putting out there that's really going to be so much help to uh, south african artists as well so wish you a lot of good fortune as well no thank you very much Malcolm. i, I appreciate it and it was great having this interview with you and that i could share some knowledge but i mean like this is a topic if you if that means start i think it'll go on and on and on and on and we'll still be talking till tomorrow morning so especially when it gets to the technical side of, but thank you very much i i honestly appreciate that and as long as you can enjoy the paint then it's it's a pleasure joe thanks for joining me today really enjoyed this chat until next time cheers I want to thank uh, George Bear, my special guest today. It was a real privilege to speak to him and find out more about the excellent work that he's doing. I think you'll all agree that Joe is a real inspiration for um, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and doing things that uh, other people may consider impossible to do. If you're interested in contacting Joe and uh, ordering some of his uh, fantastic paints, Look him up on Facebook on uh, Joe Joubert Artist Paints and uh, contact him directly and he'll be sure to help you with that. I think it is important to understand just how significant this is for uh, South African artists, especially who have been struggling to get paints of this quality into the country or to even afford such paints from stores that are currently importing good quality paint you will find that uh, not only are these paints of ex exceptional quality, but are affordable to most artists as well. So if you're looking for that exceptional paint at an affordable price, then Jojabe Artist Paints is the place to go. As always, I want to thank you for joining this um, podcast and listening to the uh, episode. If you've enjoyed it and found it useful, please do not hesitate to share it out. I do appreciate your support. Please subscribe and make sure that uh, you're ready for the next episode. I also want to mention that uh, this podcast also brought to you by Learn to Paint with Impact, my foundation painting course. You can find out more details about this course at uh, malcolmdeweyfineart.com. I hope to chat to you soon. And uh, until then... Cheers for now.